we are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. Okay, you're listening to White Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. My name is Kean, and here at the Cabin in the Woods, located somewhere in County Cork in the south of Ireland, we tackle stories of the strange, always attempting to remain critical but never cynical. Uh, this episode is my chat with the fine folks from the Workers' Cauldron podcast, a show that also looks at stories of the paranormal and checks out sort of cultural and political influences on those stories. So, a show I like listening to, and I think a little bit of crossover with some of the stuff I do. More more political than perhaps um, like cultural, then, which, which is what I like to focus on. But I think there is crossover. I think listeners will enjoy this one. I think there'll be some some continuous sort of similar elements to stuff that I've been covering in recent episodes. So, as always, uh, folks, if you like the show, you can reach out and listen and say hello to us. You can say hi on Twitter where we are at Strange Ireland or on Instagram where we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. And if you want to support the show, hey, we have a fabulous non-binding way of doing so. Lovely one-off donations of coffee to the show. So that is, of course, over at Buy Me a Coffee dot com forward slash wide atlantic and no weird that is buymeacoffee.com forward slash wide atlantic huge thanks this month to emma and to the listener known only as mantis christ for doing so so huge 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 thanks to you folks and um as always i love to know where people are listening from so if you're choosing to donate some lovely java to the show do leave a little message just saying where you are listening from i like to know that kind of thing another uh, coffee donation came in during the time i was editing so also thanks to mark stanbrook who sent in coffee and says thank you for the vast catalog of entertaining educational and impeccably researched podcasts i'm working my way through the entire archive and it's a joy to listen so very kind words there so thanks to mark uh, mantis christ sent me some interesting stuff and asked an interesting question he said keen do you know anything about the work of a man by the name of frank joseph sometimes known as frank colin it's pr- some pretty dark stuff here folks not always the kind of thing i like to talk about but i will answer the question so mantis christ sent on some good information about this fellow he's he he's a known quantity and he's um he's got a pretty dark and bad history he was basically the leader of a US Nazi party group back in the 1970s and sort of reinvented himself after prison uh, being put away for doing bad things obviously and then came back on the scene as a kind of speaker in the paranormal sort of community and a lot of his stuff was to do with alternate history sort of atlantis type things um, and a lot of stuff to do with you know a mystery white race who may have traveled across the globe in antiquity now there's a lot of this stuff in mainstream fringe mainstream fringe thinking you know what i mean like and it isn't all i like i don't believe that every person who's interested in you know fringe history alt history ancient aliens all of that stuff i don't believe that everybody who isn't interested in that stuff you know is 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 there for the bad stuff is there for the bad ideas but the fact is that always does the bad ideas do remain 
sort of an implication of it if nothing else if you're interested in ancient aliens or you know ancient mystical secret you know generally white races in history building mounds in north america or lost cities in south america or what have you you know i think most of us are just like oh cool story i like ancient history uh you know we like the idea that there is some kind of mystery involved with these famous historical sites that seems to be a meme that people just can't get out of their heads and i think for most people that's where it ends but the implication of course is that you're kind of saying well you know these non-european groups couldn't possibly have built these things that is the implication whether we like it or not and with some people in the case of frank joseph for example it goes a lot further than that and i think i'm not willing to grant the benefit of the doubt to somebody peddling in those theories as he is to this day if they have a history with the american nazi party i mean come on i can only stretch my sense of uh, fair play so so far so the reason mantis christ asked about this is because this fellow is still showing up on shows and podcasts perhaps you know from people who should know better and uh, as i said to him like this guy like his activities are known like there, there was a big hoo-ha online about a year ago where people were talking about how it was disgraceful that this guy was still showing up on shows and you know i thought he his activities were widely known and mantis christ just says look this this hasn't stuck you know people do know this people do talk about this but it hasn't stuck and for some reason he's still getting audiences and he's still getting a, a, a microphone to talk about these things and i i'm not okay with that folks and it's not the sort of thing that i obviously i like to support I do recall some uh, creators, let's say, uh, last year, maybe about this time last year, saying that they had uh, mentioned some work of Frank Joseph's on their show, which was a paranormal show, and they said they, they seemed genuinely very upset and angry after the fact when they learned about his history that nobody had ever said this or that they were like, this guy is a, a personality on the scene, so to speak, and people, like in general, people are not talking about his history, even though it, it is ostensibly known. So, you know, taking that as genuine, which I think it is, maybe we need to do a little more talking about this. Maybe we need to make this stick. So if you're, I, I guess, what's my take-home message here? Like, you know, if you're dealing with these kind of alternate history ideas, which oh, it gives me no pleasure to say this, but they inevitably seem to be designed to either elevate or in some cases denigrate a particular group of people. They seem to have an obsession with ethnicity and races and, and hyper-diffusionism, which is all Victorian nonsense. And yes, it can be fun, but oh man, just know what you're getting into as best as you can. I guess that's that's where I'm going to leave it. And little seeing into, I suppose, Archaeological Fantasies podcast. Bit of a thanks to them. They asked us whether we, yeah, they asked a lot of good people, would would we be interested in contributing to their Arctober series, which is, you know, all sorts of creators who deal with um, supernatural topics and, and been invited to create something related to archaeology for the month of October. So not an archaeologist am I, but I do have some friends who are trained archaeologists or trained in archaeology, and I have a few interviews lined up in the next few weeks and hopefully i think it'll in all likelihood it'll be the end of october before i get an episode but we'll be doing a little bit of spooky archaeology at some point and um archaeological fantasies was an early inspiration of mine back in the day kind of 2015-16 when i was getting into podcasting and i i learned an awful lot from them and i think a lot of my ideas are, are traced to some of their episodes from those days so it, it would be very 
it would mean a lot to me to be able to contribute a little something to uh, their October doings. So that's pretty cool. My beer for this episode, of course. Uh, I suppose you, you can imagine me for this for this meaning sur- in, in, here in the cabin, surrounded by dusty tomes, surrounded by ancient artifacts covered in dust, and a can of Larkin's Drench IPA, which was given to me as a sort of a, a freebie. I was in the local off-license. We call them offies here. And I think they have my number there at this point because I went in for my kind of like standard, can I please have two IPAs of some sort uh, for my, you know, my reading, my downtime, my research. That's what I like to do. And they said, oh, some of these companies have some new beers that they want feedback on that they're, you know, considering putting out there. And uh, this was one of them. It was a few weeks ago now. I've held on to it. So I'm enjoying it. And uh, special thanks to my local AFI for providing this. So... With all of that said, I'll get on to my chat with the folks from the Workers' Cauldron podcast. Hope you enjoy it. Uh, my name is David Roddy, and I'm Rosettis Castillo, and we co-host a podcast called The Workers' Cauldron. It's a great time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I I'm a fan of the show. I. Um, I, I think it covers some, I think there's some similarity with what I do, just in terms of there are a lot of shows that um, like to tell these stories about supernatural things. And, you know, that that's a storytelling thing and people really enjoy that. But um, I, I try to get into some of the cultural background, like what were the influences on the stories or what did they, did they influence in turn? And, and usually I'm thinking about like what books or movies were popular. And um, I, how, do you, how, you, how do you guys describe the show and, and what... How you kind of expand on these stories so i would say like i come from like a background in the labor and socialist movement and also just being a dork about um spooky stuff you know as a kid and as an adult and so i just kind of thought about um applying a critical lens to these stories and kind of talk about the social context in which these kind of um experiences that people experience individually but have like a very um collective social meaning uh, i don't really know why david asked me to do this to be completely I honest i can tell you why. <laughs> it was because one time we were drunk at a bar and he wouldn't stop talking and I was like, she'd be perfect and then we she comes in front of a microphone and just doesn't say anything um but i don't know i come from a spooky background too there's a lot of like mental illness in my family and you know I had a grandmother with schizophrenia, so she would just tell me about all the spooky things that were happening. So I'm also just like a weird spooky lady. Yeah, both of us have family <laughs> histories of schizophrenia. And so I think that the, you know, just because somebody has an anomalous experience, I mean, they're mentally ill, but people who are mentally ill tend to have a lot of anomalous experiences, so to speak. And so it kind of brings in um, uh, some kind of context. And I think we try to talk a bit about mental illness on our show. I mean, obviously neither of us are... Um, therapists or um, psychiatrists, but we have a background, I guess, a shared background in dealing personally with the effects of mental illness. And for me, learning about sort of the social context of um, the experience of psychosis, there's this wonderful author, Tanya Lerman, who wrote this book called her, I think it's called Our Most Troubling Madness, where she kind of talks about like cultural differences between like psychotic episodes and also um, the prognosis between cultures. And so mm-hmm. having this sort of like background of like, where does like individual trauma and like collective trauma influence people's minds, um, 
I think is something that really interests me and kind of helps me situate my own personal issues within the world. Yeah, interesting. I, I have a book somewhere here about um, Conan Doyle and his, you know, his father was was an alcoholic who had, who I, th I think was 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 put away in, a, in an institution later in his life. And one of his obsessions was fairies and he would paint, he was yeah. an artist. He, he was an artist for, I think he did like a kid's books and um, postcards and stuff. And he, he drew those kind of, you know, Victorian turn of the century, classic British fairies. And what happened to Conan Doyle later in life only, he became a believer in, in similar things. Mm -hmm. And the, yeah. the the author is trying to make the I, I don't know I don't know if um, diagnosing mental situations should be a long distance sport you know looking at right. historical yeah. figures sure but it's interesting you know is it is it Ronald Hutton who who's the author oh I'd have to go searching I, I, it's not Ronald Hutton no I don't okay. know who it is I've got his um, I'm making my way slowly through his uh, Triumph of the Moon which is very enlightening on, on oh yeah I loved it yeah yeah I, just... I am loving it. <laughs> I just got um, Drawing Down the Mood, Moon, which is Margaret Adler's um, original sort of ethnographic study of the neo-pagan movement. And I think like uh, Triumph of the Moon is sort of like a, like, like a spiritual sequel to that. Mm -hmm. And so we're, I definitely want to talk about that because when I was a kid, you know, we were very much like Wiccan. Um, hmm. Your household. My household. Yeah. Well, I don't know. My mother had like this group of women and we'd go out every full moon. To the, <laughs> top of this hill where there's a stone circle and light candles and um pray to the goddess you know as wow. you do <laughs> oh, that's, that's fascinating i didn't know that <laughs> david's mom's a lovely lady <laughs> yeah one of the things i i mean i'm making my way through it I, I i i as i interpret like one of his interesting points is that like as a british um idea originally um in the 50s 40s and 50s it was kind of still fairly patriarchal you know and it, right. it, was a, it, it was a conservative upper class thing this this was you know put together by people who were of the establishment by and large with with Gerald Gardner and his, his background and then it wasn't really until it came to the U.S. in the 60s and 70s that it became right. more feminist more I mean, it, hit the, it hit the women's movement it hit the social movements I mean that you know I think like with the earth mysteries which is around contemporary in the UK with like the Wicca revival in the United States, or like not really revival, but the spread of Wicca in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, but even the Earth Mysteries movement was fairly conservative with some of its proponents were. Um, whereas in the United States, it really got, um, it really hit like the sort of second wave feminist movement and women incorporated it into the sort of culture of um, consciousness raising. Yeah, and, and sort of new age stuff, I suppose. And yeah. yeah I, that's another thing I, I'm gathering from Hutton, which is that a lot of these ideas were originally, like like in, in our last episode, we talked about Earth Mysteries and the a lot of these kind of, you know, classic British eccentric types who would have been archaeologists or, you know, our amateur archaeologists, amateur historians, whatnot, would have been people of the establishment. And they were coming up, they were kind of allowed to be eccentric because they were, they had this place in society. And then later on, these ideas almost entirely are transferred to the more hippie folks, the more, the more new age folks. Yeah, I mean, I think that, have you read his piece? Um, he's written a couple books. Like He's written one, I think. Uh, so Blood and Mistletoe is one of them. He, he's written two books about like the Druids, um, not like the characters from Irish mythology or like Roman texts, but like neo-druids or druidic revivals and you know it transfers from this fraternal organization 
in the UK where people like Winston Churchill, you know, were part of the ancient order of Druids or whatever. And then it becomes transformed into like a hippie thing. Hmm. Um, and so I guess there's a similar trajectory there. There's probably something to be explored there. I don't know. Yeah, I find I find it a very um, like a, an amazing background, but a context that you don't always. One of my problems, I think, is that like when I was reading these things as a kid, they were presented without context. You know, like you know, people people are seeing the Owl Man, people are seeing the Mothman, people are seeing you know Kenneth Arnold sees UFOs and Mount Rainier in nineteen forty seven, and there's no context given, and it it, stri- it always struck me as like, wow, who who who? How could somebody invent these things? They're so out there. They're so bizarre. They're so without context. But then when you're like, oh, well, actually, there's this whole built up social fabric behind it that is like, you know, you've got ghost rockets in the 1930s. You've got mm-hmm. airship flaps in the 1900s. And the, Sacramento. Yeah. Sacramento. Yeah. The Sacramento. Yeah, that's, Sacramento. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's one. Yeah, that's I, I, yeah. I visited a few places in East Anglia, which were which were known for them <laughs> just yeah. when, I, when I was living there, because that's the sort of thing that I do. But um, I, that's that's what I enjoy, and 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 for me, it's a lot of it's a lot of uh, books and films. Like I said, so like I read all the all the Jules Verne books about the airships, and um, and I'm just and I'm reading H.G. Wells' War in the Air, and I'm thinking, you know, this is what people were reading, and no, then they go out and they see strange life, so they interpret it as an airship, and then you know, 50 years later, they're reading science fiction you know about spaceships and and buck rogers and buck rogers has some spherical kind of ships it's not a common motif in science fiction at the time but it did exist and it gives a little context and i suppose if you look at science fictional artwork in the 40s you know their idea of futuristic was sleek and shiny and uh, you know with without you know bells and whistles without knobs and (laughs) funny shapes on the outside of it they were into these kind of more sleek shapes and it, it doesn't it kind of makes sense within that context yeah um i think one thing that i've found useful is there's definitely this interplay between popular culture and anomalous experiences and beliefs and so we're talking like like the exorcist became was 1973 became such a uh, phenomenon but then like you kind of ask yourself like like what is the social context in which that became a phenomenon like why was the exorcist really popular at that particular historical moment mm-hmm. um and that's what we're kind of, kind of doing with the alien i've been in an alien abduction land for weeks now um and i've been trying to watch the three hours television serialization of bud hopkins intruders and oh i've watched I, just... that. I did a whole episode on that <laughs> Oh, did you? <laughs> yeah, I love it. <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll have to go back and listen. And make sure I'll copy you. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So, so like, what kind of what kind of um, things are you noticing about it at this? Like, it's it's to me, it's a very eighties nineties thing. The the version of abduction that was we now know. We're actually talking. Going to talk about that. Yeah. So um, we're thinking of doing it two parts because I just I've just been overwhelmed because. Obviously, the 90s was this sort of explosion of like critical theory. And so there's, and monsters are very popular and people wrote a lot about it. And so there's just a lot of literature to get through. Um, actually, we found a piece by Louise White, who wrote a book that we talked about, about um, vampire beliefs in um, colonial Africa. And she wrote a whole piece in alien abductions and I had no idea. But there's this one book by this woman, Bridget Brown, and she's a teacher, I think, at Syracuse University. It's called They Know Us Better Than They Know Ourselves. And I found it kind of late in research, but it kind of summed up all my thoughts. I was like, oh, my God, I have to go through this whole book. Um, I didn't, you know, obviously my thoughts weren't as original as I thought they were. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but it's, um, it's really good. And the funny thing about the book is I was looking through it, and it just seems so familiar. 
And then I looked through like my books I checked out at the UC Davis library where I went to school and there it was. And I was like, I've read it before. So probably these ideas are like circulating in my mind anyways from like 10 or 15 years ago. I mean, you've read so many books. I wouldn't be surprised if you keep running into different books you forgot about. I had this experience at UC Davis where I took down this book about tardigrades from the library and I opened it, you know, like the water bears little thing. I opened uh -huh. it and there was a note written in it from myself. <laughs> and I checked it out from an interlibrary loan book when I was like a teenager. It's like, oh my God. That's that another thing I... I like about your show it's very literary and um i get ideas for for new things new sources to check out uh, from it I, I do my best myself to back up whatever i'm coming up with 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 the best research i can find or you know if, if i can get a hold of it original source like what did people report at the time right. rather than you know the version of the story that you see on every website which is clearly kind of copied and pasted and, and i wanted to ask how you put episodes together because to me like I, I i used to write i used to script all of my episodes way back and it's a lot of work and um, oh, so I, I find it incredibly incredibly exhausting and I, I I, <laughs> you guys have a halfway house where you you have scripted sections but you talk through them yourselves uh, which i find really really accessible yeah i mean we'd like to eventually get to a point i think where it's more conversational we tried that with a, a christmas episode once yeah but i don't remember recording it because i got drunk <laughs> yeah we, were, we had we started recording it and then we were just super awkward so then we just got drunk and did it and it turned out a lot better we did the same for a ku klux klan episode because like it's such a oh, no. sensitive subject and I was like, so I, my fiance was like listening to it to listen for mistakes. She's like, why is your voice so slurred? <laughs> <laughs> like, cause it was stressing me out. I think I feel the same way. Whenever I'm like, I feel like I'm, I'm dipping into territory where I'm not quite as, I'm a little bit trepidatious about how people are going to receive it. Yeah, I, I'm much more intense with my notes. Yeah. Um, and I practically script little sections of it. But you know, I find that like the stuff that people take on not umbrage that's too strong a word but like the stuff that people feel differently about um, and, and almost always are perfectly polite and and helpful about in their responses it's never the things i think i can never predict what people are going to respond to mostly like nobody has given us any shit sorry can we swear <laughs> yeah, 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 uh, that i'm aware of i don't think we have anybody like correct us or it's been pretty positive yeah 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 um, me too i just um the stuff that you know, I, I get I get nice ideas from people who feel differently about stuff sometimes, and it's but it's never the stuff that I think it's gonna be. Uh, yeah, I mean, so I'm not really like a believer or a skeptic. I would say like like, so I went through a period where when I was a child, right? Like like every child, I think everybody who's in this industry and as a kid was checking out books about aliens as a child and believing them to some extent. Um, but then when I was um, when I was a teenager, I started to develop like obsessive compulsive disorder. And so, so a large part of like my new age background was like this idea of uh, thinking, um, like magical thinking. And uh, what do you call that when you think something and it becomes true? Oh, um. Um, <laughs> uh, but like, obviously, if you are having these terrible intrusive thoughts, like that whole entire idea becomes scary. So I kind of rejected it all and kind of absorbed in the new atheist movement that was popular at the time. And I kind of became a jerk about it. And then I started going back. As teenagers do. Yeah, like these yeah. are people's experiences <laughs> that have like a pretty profound impact in their life. And the skeptic movement, especially the new atheist movement, has drifted towards the hard right. And I think that's something that 
is worth exploring in and of itself. Um, yeah. I don't know. Did you ever have the sleep paralysis? Oh yeah. 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 Sleep paralysis. Well, so I've, um, when I was a kid, there's a couple times where I'd wake up and there'd be like people by my bed and it just terrified me. And then I was an, an adult. I learned like hypnagogic hallucinations. Like this is like maybe what happened. Um, but sleep paralysis, I get it every so often. And at first it was terrifying. And when I first read Whitley Strieber's communion, I was like, Oh crap, I've been abducted by aliens. Um, <laughs> But uh, but yeah, I get it. I get it every now and then as an adult, um, and it's pretty disturbing. Yourself? Yeah, yeah, only once or twice ever. But I didn't know what it was. I'd never heard of it. Um, but it was it was it was relatively minor. I I couldn't move in the bed. Classic, you know, classic experience. But I didn't see things. But I had this feeling that there was something in the room with me, and I really wanted right. to be able to turn around to check if there wasn't, but I couldn't. But I didn't have anything, I didn't have visual, like I didn't see creatures. And I understand that people often do. And obviously some people use this to maybe try and explain some of the abduction phenomena when it happens in bedrooms and stuff like that. Yeah, I think it was like Nancy Clancy. Wait, is that her name? Now that I've said that out loud. That's a good <laughs> one. That should, that should be a name. <laughs> that uh, Editing key in here. David just asked me to clarify that the writer he's thinking or trying to think of here is Susan Clancy. <laughs> um, I think the word you were looking for earlier was manifestation. Manifestation. <laughs> nice. nice. What do you think of, you, you know, this just popular idea that, um, you know, alien abductions are just like the latest version of some, you know, re idea which is constantly being reiterated. And back in the day, we would have said, oh, it was fairies or it was, you know, the, the Dina Sheehe or whatnot, depending on your culture. And like, do we have this need to believe that we're being interfered with by specifically little people from a different a different realm who like take us away like is this are we are we like retroactively applying this onto a completely different idea or have you read uh there's this essay called the supernatural kidnap narrative returns in technological guys by thomas bullard and hmm. it was written in the late 80s right um after like streber and hopkins became very popular and i think it was the probably one of the first ones, like obviously like Jacques Vallée and like Passport to Magonia talked a lot about um, the similarities between alien encounters and uh, fairy encounters. But I don't think it was until this essay was written where like the specific abduction narrative that we have right now was kind of broken down into its folkloric elements. And I don't know, I mean, it's an interesting question and it kind of brings up some like I guess Jungian ideas about like, is there like some kind of collective unconscious that is being expressed through these narratives and i really i really don't know my habitual thought process is that like when people make these connections between vastly different um types of phenomena i kind of think oh well then it's just just folklore isn't it whereas then other people take these and they say oh no this shows that it's this this has always been with us and therefore it must be real and it just manifests in different forms and i, I can't i can't prove it i just i just habitually kind of if, if I can if I can tell where you're getting the, these ideas from and they're from some older pre-existing media or culture, that makes me skeptical. I, I can't yeah, I can't prove it, but that's always yeah. my hunch, kind of instinctually. There's a lot of bizarre things like like the lights in the sky phenomenon. So we recently talked about the rope in New Guinea, New Guinea um, which is interpreted by creationists as like a pterodactyl that glows in the dark. Oh yeah, but it's really just—it's really just lights in the sky, you know. Um, but it's you know the cultural frame isn't aliens; it's pterodactyls. Yeah, um, that's for, so... for the creationists. Yeah, 
That's so different, isn't it? It's like you're working <laughs> with something so so uh, vague and you know could be mapped in any direction and you choose to take it there like dinosaurs <laughs> but your dinosaurs episode was good fun and i enjoyed that one thank you it's uh again like i i don't usually get very political on the show and um, except to kind of bag on colonialism a bit it's just the one thing i do feel com- i feel i know enough about it i'm minorly obsessed with the history of british colonialism yeah I, I, I wonder why I wonder why. Definitely not because I'm from a former colony. But, um, I, I just like it, it's one small area of history. I do feel confident enough making like like the, the idea that all of cryptozoology is just this kind of attempt from mid 20th century people to live out these fantasies at the exact time that the empire was crumbling and all the you know the opportunity for you know young people from the British Isles to go out into the world and have these exotic adventures and be the great white hunter, be the you know, it probably occupies a similar place that the settler mentality might do in the US. I don't know. Absolutely. This idea, this idea that there's adventures to be had, there's wide open spaces. There are, like I'm reading a book about um, the the search for the Nile and um, it's just yeah. explorers on the Nile, Tim Geel, you probably know it. And it's it's a little bit, it's kind of like 2013. It's just, a, there's a few bits in it that are a little bit old fashioned. I wouldn't describe it as being pro-colonial, but he sometimes uncritically quotes these people from the 19th century saying like, oh, you know, Africa is a place where I can go and be a real man unfettered by right. civilization. And well, what you really mean is you can go and kind of do your own thing unchecked by the systems that would stop you from doing this at home in Britain, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's like, like uh, masculinity and colonialism kind of reaffirming each other. Um, and you get that, to some extent um, with like early Bigfoot accounts where you feel like Katie Roosevelt talking about mm. meeting these giant hairy monsters in the woods. Um, and there's even a Daniel Boone Bigfoot story. And so I think like there's like the idea of like frontier masculinity, um, I think is a reflection of the development of colonialism and contemporary like ideas about patriarchy that kind of developed in tangent with each other. You should talk about the guy that went to go look for Bigfoot that that man told you about oh yeah so i recently went up to bluff creek uh, i don't know if no you're familiar with that. oh that's a <laughs> i would do that yeah and so we try to get to the patterson gimlin film site right okay okay um, so here, here sorry i have to i have to like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> how well known like i've seen different people claiming that they've been there on and i've read that it's hard to get you or it was lost for years or people saying oh look we've we've done this expedition specifically to find it like is it for sure known where it was and is it easy to get to um so yes and kind of <laughs> and so we i wanted to go try again so we didn't get there i wanted to try again though this summer but the whole area right now is just on fire or was oh, on fire like a month ago and so i mean northern california has just been devastated by wildfires um it's really sad driving around but we went up there in april and when we went there like we um there is snow still on the roads and so we were like maybe four miles from the site and we tried to get there in a car rental car that got stuck in the snow and then this truck came up behind us and it was um this indigenous man. So in that area, it's right by the Hoopa reservation where there's, you know, there's a reservation. And then um, there's a couple different reservations up there. Uh, your family's from up there. Mm-hmm. And um, and so this truck came up behind us and this indigenous man was like, oh, like, what are you guys doing up here? And I didn't want to say looking for Bigfoot, 
but the guy I was with was like, oh, looking for Bigfoot. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so then like, like we eventually got out of the snow and came down and the guy like kind of pulled us over and he was out with his wife collecting firewood. And he started uh, talking to us about Bigfoot and he was saying how there's a, a campsite called Laos Camp, which is very close to both the Jerry Crew site. I don't know how Bigfoot were like. Yeah, Jerry Crew was the he was the the, the logger who was logger, in the yeah. first footprints in 1958. That sounds right. Or 58 yeah. or 57. Okay. Um, but he was saying that he was there with like some of his like cousins, um, which you know, like within like indigenous communities in the United States, cousins kind of a white term, I understand. I'm sorry what is that like a wide term a wide term yeah, yeah. i mean cousin can be like a friend you know, yeah. or somebody you're close to so a friend or a relation right yeah. and they were there and this guy comes with this big truck. but everybody's cousins too so right <laughs> <laughs> everyone's related um this nice. guy comes he's, he's this white guy comes in this truck and he's just wearing camo and he's like he, he said he was dressed like bigfoot was going to shoot back and he comes with this gun and starts you know pointing it like at like this guy's camp um and saying he's out there to kill Bigfoot. And so all these, you know, Koopa men, they like grab their guns and they're pointing them back and they like have to like, you know, try to like tear down camp and get away from like this crazed like Bigfoot hunter. Mm -hmm. And he started talking to me more about it. And um, he was talking to me about like how Bigfoot to him is this protector of children and women. And he gave the story about how he was hiking and he was feeling very afraid and he looked behind him and he saw like, you know, like a bipedal, like hairy person enter the, like weave the trail onto the forest. And suddenly he felt like really comforted knowing that like Bigfoot was there because he was like a child and he was going to be protected. And so like within this conversation, like he kind of expressed both this colonial idea of Bigfoot as, you know, this man who goes out of the woods with a gun mm -hmm. and also like his own traditional view of like these forest um, people. Yeah. spirits both overall beautiful experience yeah. even though you couldn't get to the spot couldn't get to it you no. never got there never got there there's too um, much snow we went to the bigfoot motel though <laughs> terrible place is that the one that's in all the films like it's in the willow creek film and all that yeah yeah and so willow creek there's this fellow tom yamarone who's like the bigfoot folk songwriter yes and I think he he's in that... the song about roger patterson and yeah <laughs> no uh, I know him. I know him quite well. Um, so when I was a teenager, I was pretty into Bigfoot, um, and by pretty into Bigfoot, I was very into Bigfoot. And so actually, like um, like Cliff Berkman and like uh, like before Funny Bigfoot was a show, I went out with him looking for Bigfoot, and I got a like the. Can I? You you said that before on the show, and I need to ask like what. Was he like? Was he easy to get in touch with? And like, what was he doing in those days? Was he, he was a school he's teacher, just, wasn't he? Yeah, he's a school teacher, just looking for looking for Bigfoot. I mean, he's very smart. He's very kind. Um, I like. I've him a lot, he's a really nice guy. I mean, I've met him. Yeah, know, knew him. Yeah, um, he's some very um, yeah, very nice. Um, Were you just a, a kid like contacting this guy online saying, "Can I come in?" Well, there's this thing called the Bigfoot forums or Bigfoot forum, maybe. And is it something that still exists? No, thank God. I don't <laughs> want anybody to see this. Before BFRO or sorry, this I don't... was so BFRO. I think started in the 1990s by Matt Moneymaker, but then there was a couple splits from it because I understand he's hard to get along with. I've never met him, um, and so there's a split in California that was led by Kathy Strain, who's an archaeologist. Yes, I know her. She's in. She was in some of the small town monsters. Uh, 
Bigfoot things. Yeah, I, I like her too. She's pretty like, um, she's very politically conservative in my experience, which is very true for the Bigfoot community in general. Though Cliff Berkman and Tommy Amarone are both um, more liberal. And so like Tommy Amarone often will make posts on Facebook and then it'll just get like hounded by these Bigfoot believers who are just, you know, like, you know, like QAnon and stuff. Oh, and uh, it's a weird, it's a weird little world, but, but yeah, it's my Bigfoot background. <laughs> yeah, excellent. And um, that's, yeah, tremendous. I was just thinking, um, like, like for me, the, the big cultural touch point for Origins of Cryptozoology, I'm always talking about it on the show and I've done whole episodes, but I'm obsessed with Conan Doyle's Lost World, which oh, yeah. is 1912. And like some of these early, I'm rereading all the old Cryptozoology books, like and some of them are really blunt. They mention like Gibbons, you know, the, he was one of the creationists going looking for yeah, yeah, William Gibbons. Man, but he was inspired by watching the 1925 silent movie. Yeah, the recreation of the Lost, of the Lost World. World. Yeah, yeah the, right. the Willis O'Brien one. And then like in Huvelman's uh, On the Tracks of Unknown Animals, I think he, one of his, one of the first chapters is called like something like There Are Lost Worlds Everywhere. And it's just really blatant. It's It's, it's almost as if they, you know, you read a book and it's like, oh, that would be cool. I'm just going to choose to believe that. And it's just, it blows my mind because I'm, okay, look, I'm not the most logical guy, but I'm still, I'm a trained scientist and I, I try to hold myself to the, that kind of thinking. And therefore the idea that somebody would be so free and easy with their interpretation of the world, is, I like this, therefore I believe it. That's just, I read this book, I thought it was cool. And therefore I choose to see it in real life. I just... I'm so I'm so slow to accept new things. Maybe not to my credit. <laughs> that I find I can like is that is that immensely freeing to just you know believe whatever you think is cool. I don't know because <laughs> you read it in a I book. Mean, I can, I definitely like suspend my disbelief when I'm reading. Like like I'll get into like okay, Bud Hopkins like yeah they are doing a breeding program. You're totally right. And then I'll close the book <laughs> and be like that's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> But, um, and I can't do it, like, I can't do it with ancient aliens, like, for the life of me, I just can't do it. Like, I'll watch that show and I'll just be like, oh, this is just such bad thinking. <laughs> um, but, but usually I can try to, like, suspend my disbelief, to kind of, like, get into their worldview, maybe, is one way to put it. And maybe because I want to believe, I do. I was like, oh. Yeah. Do you give, do you find that you're, you treat the stuff that you liked as a kid differently to the stuff that you might come across now that might be new to you? Uh, no, nothing's new. It's all, I'm just repeating my childhood. You know, like, you're, you're absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know what you I mean, especially with like UFO stuff, it's, it's all disclosure, it's all stuff. It all happened in the 50s, happened again in the 90s. It's all the same stuff. I, I guess what I'm, what I'm getting at is like, there are some stories that I will willingly spend disbelief, but like, let's say I didn't read Ancient Alien stuff when I was a kid. So when I read that now, I can't get past the sort of, you know dodgy historical takes to to enjoy it the way some people just think it's like silly nonsense and sometimes i can't get past the fact that so you're kind of saying that like non-european people just couldn't build stuff right that's the yeah that's kind of the underlying i have a hard Message. time with it yeah i know it's bad and i think one thing that we found is just like how deep the legacies of colonialism and racism you know they're kind of like two mutually enforcing systems um influence just the world of the paranormal and I guess it, it, they influence everything right it's like it it's like it's how the modern world was created but just the extent of it I didn't really appreciate until we started this podcast uh, and especially like um so like I was thinking of like African dinosaurs and I looked up I found Ed Guimont's article just by like looking up 
like, I think I just looked up like, like Hoovelman's colonialism or something like that on Google when this article came up. And yeah, that's very, it's very, um, that's, you know, it's, a, it's, it's disturbing in a way to think about like how these narratives that like we absorbed as children are kind of reflective of systems of oppression in the real world. Yeah, and he's, yeah, that article is, is like a lodestone for that sort of, it just brings together things that, uh, it, makes you, it makes you amazed afterwards, like how, how was this material presented to me without any context, you know, because divorce from context, these are just like these crazy stories that either you find them ridiculous or you find them, you know, fascinating, whatever, but nothing is in a, in a vacuum, everything right. is within the, you have to think like this was written, this idea was first presented by somebody it just like, like who was living in a world where like, just think about like when, when Carl Hagenbach reports his sighting in 1919 or whatever it was like. Editing key in here, it was 1908. You know, brontosauruses were being set up in, and dip, dip, diplodocus were being, skeletons were being set up in, in all the main um, uh, museums in London. And I think the London diplodocus was 1905, you know? So this was new, this was hot shit. This was a huge cultural thing, dinosaur. There was, you know, a certain amount of dinomania. So like, that story came from somewhere, you know? They were in the culture. There was something in the ether. I really appreciate the word dinomania. Dinomania. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, a good one. <laughs> it's a word usually associated with like post-Jurassic Park 1990s, but there were earlier <laughs> earlier uh, existent, ex, uh, examples of it. I think Darren Nash did an article. I can't remember who he did it with, a paleontologist. I don't know if you're familiar with him. And they looked at like sea monster sightings was, and it, like a, was it Cameron McCormick? He's been on the show. It might have been Cameron McCormick that he wrote it with because he would have done it. Editing key in here. Apologies to a few folks. Um, while this is exactly the sort of thing that Cameron has written in the past with uh, with Darren Nash, uh, I think the, the particular paper that we're talking about here is called Did 19th Century Marine Vertebrate Fossil Discoveries Influence Sea Serpent Reports? And it's actually uh, Darren Nash with Charles Paxton. So apologies for the error there. But they talked about like um, like how plesiosaur sightings happened after the sort of dinomania of like the discovery of plesiosaurs in like Victorian England, and yes. before that, you know, the sea serpent form and like the form of the monster changed with the culture changing. It was really fascinating. Yeah, yeah. He said like you have ichthyosaurs and plesiosaurs discovered in sort of eighteen tens and twenties, I think. Yeah. And then you get you right. get sea serpent sightings shortly after that. <laughs> Oh, man. I'm making my way through uh, The Great Orm of Loch Ness. I'm always reading like, oh. 10 books at once. Have you have you read that one? No. We, we read Water Horses. Mm -hmm. Is it the Ooh. book that you got from... Didn't you have like a little... Oh, no. There? That was a pamphlet. I can't remember who wrote that, but it was by... Um, it was the first like folklore study of the Loch Ness Monster, and I got it from a bookstore about UFOs in Sweden. <laughs> I, not, I didn't go to Sweden. I had a ship from Sweden. <laughs> but... um. Mm, but no, I, no, that's not the one. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's Ted Holiday. Ted Holiday was a, a, a British angler. In, oh, it's Ted. It's Ted Holiday's book that you're reading. Yes, and he yeah his idea is that, and he he's he's so serious about this. It's 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 tremendous. Uh, but he but he comes to believe it's some kind of mollusk, and oh yeah, there's a, there's yeah. a creature discovery. There's a, a some sort of invertebrate called Tully Monstrum. Yeah. And yeah. he thinks it's one of those because he's basically, he's done his best to categorize all of the different sightings of the Loch Ness Monster. And, you know, they're all slightly different. There's not a whole lot of consistency. Some people see it as a sea serpent type thing. Some people describe it as a plesiosaur. Some people just see humps and like, you know, anomalous squidgy things. And he, he kind of puts them all together and says, well, 
what creature from history would you know stand in for all of these and he comes up with this Tully Monstrum thing, which is a very bizarre looking invertebrate. And he just, he lays out a whole book on like the, what the ecology of this thing would be. It's fascinating. Yeah. Didn't he get into like more metaphysical stuff later and like how like the Loch Ness Monster is like some kind of projection from another dimension? He did. Is yeah. that right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Also, That's... He was involved in a, an exorcism of the lake. That's right. Yeah. Oh dear. With a priest <laughs> in a boat on the lake exercising that the, 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 the monster is like some kind of demon or ghost i wanted to actually ask you guys about your your demon episode where you're talking about your link uh, the sort of interest in the resurgence of interest in, in demonic possessions with like economic anxieties i enjoyed that one very much it was a fun episode um yeah well uh i think that we're talking earlier about the exorcist movie and like when it came out like that was right when the um That's Roland monster. Hugh Watson, who I believe is like one of the most recent proponents that still lives at Loch Ness Monster, is called the Water Horses of Loch Ness. And what's cool about this book is like he talks about these earlier accounts, like Kelpies or um Gushka. Yeah, Gushka. And uh, you'd know that word more than I would. And but there's cases of like lights underwater that are interpreted as it. And then there's like this one case where a hairy man jumps out and attacks a guy on a horse. And so you have like Bigfoot, like like underwater submerged like usos and like the Loch Ness monster all wrapped up in like this folkloric <laughs> bundle it's wonderful but he interprets it all, he interprets the whole thing as like being evidence of like some kind of animal which is weird to me that he goes through like all these accounts um but anyways back to demons uh demons so neoliberalism and demons yeah well you know like so you were raised as jehovah's witness right? yeah I so was was that demon belief pretty prevalent in your childhood? Um, actually, they didn't talk about demons a whole lot. You know, it was it's difficult because my grandmother, who was Jehovah's Witness, was also schizophrenic. Mm -hmm. So she talked a lot about demons because she saw them. Right. But I think in the church and then like other people who were there, they not a whole lot of talk about demons. There was a you know, they didn't want specific things in the house. Like there was one time I brought uh, one of the scary stories to tell in the dark books home with me um and it ended up in the fireplace because they didn't want to bring like demons into the house or the devil so I was like that was a library book <laughs> what are you doing <laughs> um but yeah so they were like they didn't talk about them a whole lot because I think talking about them brought them about but it was just kind of like a undercover like it's just kind of always there type of thing so the I think like we've talked about neoliberalism and um as a sort of um, this response um, to the economic crisis in the 1970s, the crisis of profitability, um, as well as like being aligned with a, you know, the neoconservative movement, which was very much concerned with the breakdown of the traditional family. And demons kind of pop out of this context. And if you look at like the McMartin school case where um, these children came forth um, in Southern California to say that they were like being abducted by Satanists and Part of all these weird rituals. I mean, I think that that kind of speaks to anxieties about women entering the labor force and no longer being at home with the children. Mm -hmm. And so the question that I had was like, why did the Ouija board become something that I like? I, I didn't even come from a Christian family, but it was like Ouija boards, you gotta stay away from them. Yeah. Like, why did they become associated with like demons? All of a sudden, like seemingly out of nowhere, if you look at the history of the Ouija board, mm -hmm. and it was you know the Exorcist in part, but also um, 
like the growth of like the charismatic religious movements that then eventually became um, like third wave Christianity or charismatic Christianity and also like traditionalist Catholicism, mm -hmm. like um, Malachi Martin, um, whose book Hostage to the Devil um, is very much like sympathetic to the uh, emergence or, or the, um, I guess, the, uh, the Vatican taking away like the Latin mass and how that in turn inspired demons to take over the world. And so it's like, it's like a weird way of looking at the world in terms of it being haunted by demons. But this was specifically like happening at a cultural moment um, and in response in part to things like the women's movement, um, but also to the breakdown of like society. And so like, economic anxiety often, or anxiety in general, um, often will lead people to have sleep disorders or whatever, and we were talking earlier about how experiences like sleep paralysis um, are often recounted in you know books by like Warren or Malachi as um, Martin as demonic experiences, especially in this period. They don't really get into aliens until later into the 90s or mm -hmm. late 80s, early 90s. Um, but yeah, I think that there's this very definite like economic and cultural moment that allowed demons to enter American culture and um, they became obsessed with it really. Mm. And then there's this kind of revival of interest in the paranormal following um, the Iraq war with shows like Ghost Hunters and A Haunting that are all kind of based um, on the methodology of the Warrens who themselves were coming from this sort of right-wing Catholic reactionary background. And that's about the time, like shortly after that, they started making all the films. Right, the, the Conjuring, the Conjuring. Yeah, yeah well, that's, yeah, maybe like 10 years after, after one of the first Conjuring find, I'm, I'm not as familiar with the sort of ghost, you know, the early aughts ghost hunting shows. It's not one of my, one of my hotspots. Do you find that uh, they often have the demonic bit going on? Is that part of their shit? Yes. So Taps, which is the original like ghost hunting crew actually had a demonologist on their team. And I was like, why would you have a demonologist on your team? And, um, and you know, there's this belief um, that, you know, buildings can become infested by demons. And I think that this was what really was um, the result of the Warren's books and movies. And then like a haunting, you have like a haunting in Connecticut and I don't know, the medieval horror, like these are all cases of the Warren's linking yeah. hauntings to demons. And so, yeah, like, like the ideas of the Warrens um, become commonplace within like the paranormal ghost hunting world. Mm -hmm. um, I think as a direct result of reactionary politics. It's a, it's a very good episode. I very much enjoyed some of those connections. And um, makes me think a bit of, I mean, the only one of those shows I really remember was Most Haunted, which was the British one. I think probably predates a lot of the US ones. Um, it's like, it might be 2001, 2002. And I, if I remember correctly, one of the, like one of them is a psychic and it's like, hold on now. Because, you know, they set this thing up like we're going to investigate this properly and, you know. Right. They try to make I mean, it sciencey. Like, how can yeah. you use this unproven thing to, you know, detect another unproven thing if you're going to be sciencey? I mean, that's just like the classic, like, uh, bunk thing to do, right? Is like explain something with something else that's unexplained. Um, so you're in Cork. Um, there was, you know, like, 
the moving statues phenomenon in the that's right yeah yeah it was a in the mid eighties. Uh, what's it called? Something spittle. Bal Balan spittle. Yeah, I was Balan there. Spittle, um, yeah, I was there last week for a job. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. I actually uh, I was showing somebody around, and uh, we drove through that town. And I said, uh, yeah, yeah, I'll show you where this <laughs> completely mad thing happened. We did an episode on that. So if, if folks aren't sure, it basically oh. it was, a, it was a, a, a religious miracle, I suppose, is probably the best category to put that into, where the, we have grottos, which are like little caves uh, around the countryside where you have statues of the Virgin Mary. And on this particular, this was 1985, and the statues were reported to be moving. And it was, the church actually didn't want to, as is usually the case, the church are very slow to give the the seal of approval to these things because I, I guess they don't want to be caught out shortly afterwards for endorsing something which turns out to be to have a regular explanation which mm -hmm. you know fair enough um, kind of smart the stigmata guy uh Padre Pio, yeah yeah so he was on the go in the 1930s I think yeah they kind of touched on that in Dairy Girls do they touch <laughs> on Dairy Girls yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh man that's that's a good show I saw I saw a good thing on Twitter recently where somebody said you know I'm a I don't, I can't, they must have been from the US, but they said, I'm, I'm a well-traveled person. I've, I've been around and I speak so many languages, but I still have to put on the subtitles when I watch Dairy Girls. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, the worst, I thought, you see the Young Offenders? That there, that's in Cork, yeah. That's way worse for me um, than Dairy Girls, but. Those guys but yeah. are doing like a proper inner city Cork accents. And yeah. They don't really talk like that. <laughs> oh, obviously. Um, yeah, we were. I was in Derry a couple of years ago, and my fiance loves Derry girls. And I guess there's a mural there, and you know we saw all like the old like Trebles murals, but um, we didn't see the Derry girls murals. And I, and I guess it's on the side of like a hamburger joint that we were in. <laughs> so we were inside so you, the building. You, you were in the building, but you didn't see the <laughs> giant yeah, mural. <laughs> that was very disappointing. <laughs> so I, want, I want to make uh, a connection between the the um, Exorcist and the the. Uh, between Ireland and the, the demonic stuff. So in Ireland, right, there's everybody believes that the exorcist was banned, okay, because we were so Catholic. A lot of a lot of things did get banned, you know, you didn't right. have to work that hard to get banned. But I was on a show called Censored, a friend of mine, and she does a show where she reads books that were banned by the Irish Catholic censors over the 20th century. And she asked me to go on the show, and I was like, well, can you find a book that was banned by the Irish censors, which has something to do with the occult? We thought that would be easy. We thought, you know, Dennis Wheatley or something for sure would have been banned. Mm -hmm. And it was really hard. We did we did find one Dennis Wheatley book eventually, but it's not one of the better ones. And it turns out that they weren't that interested in occult stuff. That wasn't a big boogeyman for them. They were way more interested in banning stuff that had divorce or, you know, right. abortion. And that, that was the stuff. Sex were, and gender. Yeah, they were more interested in that stuff, which is wasn't really my, you know, I wanted some, <laughs> I wanted yeah. some satanic stuff. And they, they, <laughs> <laughs> Ireland's really interesting. Um, it's like, I think uh, it was Leo Farrakhan called like the silent revolution or like the secularization of, of Ireland and like within like a generation. It happened and, pretty quickly. Uh, yeah. 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 No, it's bizarre. I mean, I think like Ireland's culturally probably more liberal than California in a lot of respects. Like, they had like, <laughs> like the gay marriage referendum. Like, I don't think that would work here. Mm -hmm. um, we had the opposite. Um, yeah. And. Uh, but yeah, what was interesting about the um, moving statues is it came, you know, the, like Ireland was obviously very depressed economically, and it also came like a year after the Kerry baby scandal. Yes. Um, the traditional take on that, if you read about it, is is more economic actually. It's more like right. this was a time there was a lot of emigration happening at the time, and um, the 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 economy was in a bad state, and and people usually look at that 
um, when they're interpreting it. Now, whether that's because they're not comfortable talking about other stuff, I, I, I don't know myself. I really only caught the tail end of like proper Catholic Ireland and I'm not really best place to speak much about it. I don't, I didn't grow up with much of it. In fact, Father Ted, which I talk about, I mentioned occasionally, I, I think was chronicling. It's an interesting time capsule now. It's chronicling a version of Ireland that I dimly remember, but which it itself helped to change, you know, by ridiculing. Like, right. Father Ted is, is, is ridiculous. It's, it's very old. It's basically old fashioned British style. Oh, yeah, I know, it's, I know it's it. Yeah. Like Faulty Towers type comedy. But be, like, the, mere, the mere fact that all the characters are priests and that the priests are presented as being a bit ordinary and silly and there's a dancing priest and there's a disco priest and there's a, whatever you have in the normal world, there's an analog in the priest world. Yeah, they had, they had a censorship episode, right? Like, like Donald, oh, this yeah, sort of the, thing. The, yeah. the Passion of St. Tibulus. That's it, yeah. Uh, I was watching it recently and like, like Father Jack Hackett's like lecherous attitude towards girls. I was like, it's really awkward. Um, yeah. So they're, they're commenting on stuff that would have yeah. been a big important thing at the time, and the, right. the plot with the the bishop who has a, a son, knew that, like, yeah, that he shouldn't have. That's all based on big scandals that were happening at the time as well. Right, right, that's right. You know, when people talk about like the haunted house movies of the seventies and stuff like that, like the Amityville and stuff, and they yeah. usually reach for a uh, an economic example as to why those stories talk. I know these kind of ideas about home ownership and stuff. Yeah, um, I think. Well, I think like there is um one interesting narrative and like it shows like a haunting is they're always like like we never thought we could afford this house it was our dream house and like the previous owners wanted us to leave it you know and so there is a class anxiety i think um within the narratives that are presented and then a lot of these haunted house stories became really popular again in after the housing crash in 2008 and i think that there's an article written about that that i eventually want to dig up um but but yeah um there's certainly a connection there and i think that the ideas of homeownership and the ideas of haunting are very related at least in the united states i'm not sure if that's true in ireland well we're, we're certainly a society which is increasingly placing more and more load on homeownership i mean i think that is going to be the the, the fracture in in the future for you know going forward is whether whether you have property or not i think is going to be the like more so than religion more so than anything else you know mm -hmm. because we're, we're putting so much of a load because renting is is less and less feasible so you know whether if, if you have the wherewithal or the means or the the family support to get to get into housing then that's a huge difference as to whether or not you can achieve that i think going forward yeah, yeah i went to dublin a few years ago and there was like um like a tato bag it was like scratch for free rent for a year or something like that. It was Seriously? really bizarre. Yeah. yeah. I, I kept it. It's in my house. That's so um, dark. God, I know. like an insane housing problem. <laughs> <laughs> um, so do you, do you think that there's, there'll be like, how are haunting narratives in Ireland right now? Is there any cultural phenomenon around that? Like there is in the States? I don't No, I don't feel like there. I, I, I think Ireland lacks a distinctly 40 and, I might get, I might get, this might be controversial. Um, Ireland obviously has a rich history of folklore and, you know, anyone like will bring out any number of well-known stories. And actually your, your Bridget Cleary episode is, is a nice example of, you know, like fairy lore and how that goes into some dark places too. But I, I don't think we have, like when I say 40, and I guess I mean distinctly kind of post 1970s, you know, like the idea that where there are this wide variety of disparate phenomenon, phenomena, which are, you know, a wide range of different kinds of things. We're going to study them all in a kind of a 
partially a scientific way. I don't think we have that. And I think I wonder if it's because of Catholicism. That could that would make sense to me. Compared um, to Britain. You know, Britain yeah. had this very much like a tradition of eccentric scientists, eccentric archaeologists, eccentric um you know, antiquarians who uh, came up with these fan- fascinating theories all through the 20th century that were, you know, it's influenced by their older folkloric beliefs, their older religious beliefs, but it's, it's distinct from it. Like, I think Fortean is its own thing. Mm-hmm. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting about the United States is, you know, the Warrens and Malachi Martin were very Catholic, though I don't think that mm. the the sort of haunting um, mythology that they produced has any real tie to Catholic communities. That's not entirely true. Actually, we... Do you think Americans are also more prone to sensationalize things? Yeah, probably. <laughs> so, I did have a friend, so um, we do have a friend who's like a Catholic that's, um, uh, her family's Mexican-American. Bobby. Bobby, yeah. Uh, and she actually had her house exercised from demons um, because her cousin got possessed, allegedly. Um, and so I guess, yeah, I guess there is that there so mm-hmm. within the Catholic community. I'm wrong. I take it back. <laughs> like another, another way of looking at it is that some of our most famous kind of 14 type events were almost like exports. It's almost like people who were studying this in Britain applied those, that worldview here. Like be, the people who were in like Ted Holiday and those guys who were into Loch Ness were having difficulty, you know, catching the monster. So they decide, well, let's go to some Irish locks where right, there's yeah. some folklore and go looking there. And they kind of exported the idea. That's my feeling anyway. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that that thing, that, like that cryptozoological take on the lake monsters would have existed in Ireland without these guys coming over with, with this British take. And, and, and like the Loch Ness Monster, probably in all likelihood, probably comes from movies in the 1930s, probably comes from King Kong. Oh, it absolutely does. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I was looking up the time, the exact timeline on that. And King Kong is shown in in London in, I think, something like March 1933. And the Spice reciting, which is like one of the core early writings, right. is, is actually quite, it's not until like August or something, but that's when it's reported in the paper. But the exact date when it happened is a bit nebulous. I think we can presume sometime in the preceding month, probably. But they mentioned yeah. they mentioned King Kong in the interview with with Gould, who's one of the early researchers, and they literally say, "Oh yeah, it was a bit like that thing we saw in that movie." <laughs> but like people don't know this, someone had to go and find. Well, uh, if, if you read the old books, actually, to be honest, they do mention that. You know, but this it's like with the with the what the chupacabras. You know, it's like the woman who saw it originally literally said, "Oh yeah, it's like that movie Species that I saw right. last mm-hmm. week," and yet the story grows legs and takes off. And like it took how many years for someone to actually go back? I think it was Benjamin Radford. It goes back. It was to Benjamin says. Radford, yeah. And he he's he was in fourteen times recently enough talking about this, saying like, you know, I wrote this up at the time, but it's that hasn't stuck. You know, that's not what people remember. <laughs> yeah, I will definitely do the chupacabra. It's such. I a, think that'd be an interesting one. Yeah, there's a. I read an article somewhere about like resentment from Puerto Rico towards like the Americanization of the creature yeah um, he definitely talks about like neo-imperialism and the, the okay. there's a metaphor as a blood-sucking kind of a... right yeah <laughs> yeah you get that a lot like vampire stories uh, oh those vampires America. versus the bronx do you do that <laughs> <I don't remember laughs> oh my gosh it's on netflix it's really great <laughs> there's, there's somewhere somewhere online there was a collection of old victorian um 
newspaper uh, cartoons like probably from punch or something and it's like you know when they want to make uh, irish republicanism look bad you know like the fenians back in the 19th century the fenianism is a vampire ready to suck the british empire dry meanwhile in this other paper the british the british are a vampire ready to suck ireland dry and it's the mm-hmm. same image being repurposed for all these different political takes yeah no, the vampire the vampire is such an interesting character um and uh, we, we briefly got into vampires because um, there's a kind of a moral panic in Malawi about vampires um, recent, fairly recently. Um, and uh, I don't know, did, you, did you read David McNally's Monsters of the Mar- Market? No, what, tell us about that. It's, um, it's like this specifically Marxist interpretation of, well, like it starts like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and like talking about like the breakdown of the proletarian body into usable parts. Um, as reflected in like Gothic literature, but then he gets into stories in Africa about vampires, and he uses Louisa White's work a bit on um, like vampire mythology during colonial times, and he starts talking about like the beliefs about vampires in like post-colonial times, and how they've really like exploded in parts of sub-Saharan Africa. It's it's really fascinating reading. Um, it kind of takes a lot from like um, Michael Tausig, who wrote a. I remember that name. What's that book called? It's about the devil and commodity fetishism. Okay. Um, yeah. Cool. But yeah, yeah one, one of the last things I wanted to mention was uh, I very much enjoyed the episode you did recently about the uh, phantom helicopters. And that's like, you make a tremendous amount of connections between all these disparate, you've got the sagebrush rebellion and you've got the, the state of farming in the US at the time and you've got um, you've got the helicopters and you've got the cattle mutilations and everything. Do you want, would you say a little bit about that? Because I, I very much enjoyed some of those ideas. Um, yes. Yeah, so the cattle mutilation phenomenon, um, we kind of, I guess like one thing that happens within paranormal literature is these phenomena happen and they're kind of like, like, like you said, in a vacuum, they're kind of taken as a given, but the phenomenon actually didn't really kick off until there's this, what was called like the wreck in the cattle industry in the United States where um, essentially the price, there was um, inflation or stagflation at the time and the price of beef went up and then there was a consumer boycott and all these meat packing plants shut down and small farmers in particular were really squeezed. And at the same time, at first, like, um, like 1973 around the time of the wreck, they're talking about cattle rustlers and there's these mysterious helicopters that are coming down and they're stealing cows. Yes. And then, um, you know, within the next few years, people start finding like mutilated cattle. And the interpretation is that like these, what were, were these helicopters coming down were actually um, like somehow mutilating the cattle for some reason. And so there's um, Ed Asner, I think is his name, who was, uh, no, that's not right. I was just looking at this last night. But there's, there's a series of like, like it kind of like, blends into like these conspiracy theories theories um about helicopters and the government this is particularly like i think um kind of resonant in the years directly after vietnam and then it, it gets interpreted multiple ways and so the police officers um you know they interpret it as a satanic cult and i think you know they think of it something that kind of something's organized crime essentially mm-hmm. and then the um, the sort of environment that produced the Sagebrush Rebellion at the time was fueled by this sort of right-wing conspiracism and there's a oh, it's actually a government program that's stealing our cows. And of course the ufologists come in and it's like, no, it's aliens. 
And I think that's kind of what culture is stuck to. I just watched an episode of the first episode of South Park is about alien yes. abductions. I was hoping you're going to bring that. I just, I, just, <laughs> I just watched it and it happens. It, it, they, it's like kind of at the height of the popularity of the X-Files and, uh, it kind of takes place in like small town America, like white America, where, you know, there's this UFO that comes out and mutilates cows. And it turns out they just want to like befriend the cows. I don't know. It's ridiculous, obviously. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, there, there's there's a very clear relationship, I think, between like the wreck of the cattle industry and the development of the cattle mutilation mythology. Um, and then that mythology kind of takes on a life of its own, as it usually does. And now we have, you know, I think, where's that mug? Like I have a mug from New Mexico that's just a UFO being taking a cow. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's like just, a ubiquitous image of of UFO for Fortiana. Yeah, cow being abducted. I was yeah, struck but, by how how long it took in your episode. Like how long it took between this um, showing up and then it, it's it's quite a while until people actually connected to like you know government bad things. I, I was surprised. Whereas now, when something weird shows up, that's like the first. That's like the go to. Mm-hmm. I, it's just interesting how long it took a little while, didn't it? Yeah. Uh, so the seventies, like that's the birth of conspiracy culture, and you know there was, I mean, like the um, like Senate investigations into the CIA, and obviously Watergate was around that time. Um, but yeah, it isn't really until the eighties where conspiracy theory um, becomes more mainstream, and then by the nineties you have the X Files, right, and like that mm-hmm. becomes almost like. Um, reflection it's reflection it's also like mythology and it continues to this day um and i think that there it reflects some degree of alienation from like the state um and it also kind of ties back into it was really early anxieties about the state in terms of like anti-semitism and and yeah it's all very strange but um but yeah like the satanic panic's happening again you know it's yeah, like, yeah, uh, on, yeah big time yeah. Interesting. But, X-Files is also like a signal boost for all of this stuff. It, it, it just yeah. keeps everything up to 11, you know, and like even today when we're talking about Fortiana, newspapers will say, oh, it's like the X-Files or like I went to, um, what, what's that? Yeah, you, I went to the Bent Waters, you know, in the UK, the, the Rendlesham Forest, and they have a UFO <laughs> trail that you can walk. Oh, fun. The, the, the map that you get from, the, this is from the local council, is done in the shape of, you know, like fake government files with the brown paper <laughs> and everything is written in that X-Files typewriter font. So like it's oh my gosh. to reference, pop culture reference for anything to do with this stuff. It, it was so powerful. Yeah, no, so I've, I've been, I've been reading, I've been very much into like the nineties UFO culture because that's what we're working on right now. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it's amazing um, just how much, like even Baywatch, like, are you familiar with Baywatch? Um, <laughs> yeah, Anderson. Yeah, yeah. So like they uh, they did a sequel to Baywatch called I think it's called Baywatch Nights. Yeah. And uh, and you you know the lead character um, what's his name? Had hairy chest. Hasselhoff. David Hasselhoff. It becomes a paranormal investigator for Baywatch, and they like yeah it's like wild like. Are you serious? There's like, yeah, no, they're like, there's like mermaid kidnappings and like somebody like that's like connected to Roswell and stuff on the beach. And so, it, you know, entire series where he does this or just, yeah. It? So there's, there's two episodes. There's, there's a first season where they try to, it's like more like true crime and doesn't do well. And so they do a second season and it's like 97 and it's like UFOs and mermaids and like, it's like Baywatch meets the X-Files. 
um, and even children's shows, like growing up in the 90s, you know, there was on Disney Channel, So Weird, you might be a little young. Yeah, I don't remember that. Yeah, So Weird is a big one, and then there's the show called Eerie Indiana, and it just became like, the X-Files became such a commercial success that everybody wanted some part of it, including Baywatch, which is like the last place you'd expect to find aliens, right? Yeah. I think it's more telling when shows that are not about paranormal things do a one-off episode with a UFO or something, because it's almost like it's just out there in the cultural milieu and we'll just take it and we yeah, they know that they can put it out there and people will recognize it respond to it without having to explain it right right er you know the uh oh yeah the, it's like a soap opera the soap right? opera yeah er had an abduction episode even like no way yeah it's Jeez, I wonder if michael just... Crichton wrote that one <laughs> i don't know um but uh but yeah it's, it's it was it was a huge cultural phenomenon and you know it was very influential on me growing up, it's like my mother watched it mm-hmm. religiously and she and so it kind of blended into her like new age beliefs and my personal anxieties about being an abductee. Um, but people, I mean, people really kind of took it seriously. Yeah. Um, I mean, I had, um, back when I was younger, I hung out with like this group, they were a band and they are all just would get stoned and watch alien shows and they were just obsessed with it. And I was dating one of the members and he would just have nightmares about getting abducted by aliens like all the time. So it's, people think about it and people get like really into it. Um, it's never really been something that I've been interested in, but I didn't realize how big it was until I started hanging out with them. Yeah, I, I find like alien greys spooky in a way that I like I don't find ghosts. I, I but I, I think you have to have been a certain age at that time, maybe when that when that media was ubiquitous. I find younger people don't think they're spooky. Um they just think it's kind of silly. Some of them. Uncle. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's now it's passed into the it's passed into the pop culture stuff. Like you're more likely to encounter it as a joke in a cartoon than in something serious like the X Files. Mm-hmm. I, I was reading, you know, Ryan Sprague, who's the host of that Somewhere in the Skies podcast, he wrote a book called Somewhere in the Skies and it includes like alien abduction narratives. And I was reading it, you know, and at first I was like, oh geez. And I, I was reading it at night and I got the heebie-jeebies. I really did. <laughs> I had to put it down. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't think it's real, but it got... It gets in your head when you're like, yeah. Yeah. Well, especially like if, not, if I'm going to have sleep paralysis, I don't want an alien. Yeah, that would not be fun. It's happened once. I have a final question, which is, I guess, yeah. you, you folks have thoughts about, um, like, hey, we're all interested in this stuff. Clearly, we're enthusiasts. Uh, we, we, to a certain degree, we have fun with it, I think, and we enjoy it. But also, we know that it can, you know, it, it can lead to, like, I, I, don't, I wouldn't like to be thought of as promoting irrational thinking because we know that that goes to bad places. Do you have any feelings yourselves about, like, are, are there, there's no one way of doing this. I'm not looking to set down rules but like do you, for yourselves do you find you, you you feel it's best to present it in a certain way or with certain contexts what's important to you i guess it's a big question sorry <laughs> i think that so i think it's important to talk about because it is such a strong part of culture at least in the united states it's um it's such a touchstone of people's daily lives and people do have anomalous experiences and there are things that you know are mysteries whether or not like they are, what people think they are, is a different question. But for us, there was one episode we did on um, Stanislav Zukowski. Oh gosh, yeah. And so, because I wrote the, I read his essay on like the Yetis, and it's kind of like, 
like like David Icke's ideas of reptilians is kind of like an equivalent of this um, Polish artist's ideas about yetis being like this like secret influence on human history that bred like socialism, um, which then ruined his country of Poland in his mind. And uh, and so he went through it and um, and obviously like anti-Semitism and fascism in Poland uh, contributed to like you know the Holocaust. And so it's a very probably the most serious thing um in culture right now and it's like uh like i got I had a lot of anxiety talking about it because like this guy's ideas are basically forgotten about and is it worth worth bringing them up and like giving voice to his thoughts mm-hmm. and yeah i had an anxiety attack right in the middle of that episode um in terms of spreading irrational thinking i'm not sure i mean i think i, I try to look at things like culturally but we're all kind of like we're all kind of in the moment together um it's like I think it's good to approach it with a bit of skepticism too, just to show that's not something that we actually believe in, but like also want to be respectful and understanding. Yeah, like this is especially true for things like um, that are occurring in Africa. And so, um, so um, for example, there's this um, idea of like in Juzu and Zimbabwe where people are like believed to be like stolen by. Um, what we call an English mermaids and paranormal websites um, took the story and they ran with it, but they ran, it, it really like, like, oh, like these people believe in an Aquaman universe kind of thing. Like these people are so dumb, why would they believe this? Right. Yeah, but we're gonna report on it anyways, cause it's weird. Um, and so there is a tendency, I think, for like within the community of like people interested in the paranormal to be kind of disrespectful and also maybe like repeat racist attitudes towards people um, in other parts of the world. And like these same websites will report on UFO abductions like totally seriously, but um, they're not gonna like use the same sort of patronizing language. And so we try our best to be respectful of other people's stories. Like we wanna have like an internationalist perspective uh, because you know, these sort of anomalous experiences um, happen, you know, there's some of that humans experience and they can be revealing, for example, um, like mass psychogenic illnesses and like um, fat, like garment factories in Southeast Asia, like has like a very spiritual component to it. But it also talk, tells us about like the relationship between like uh, Western corporations and these countries and the extraction of labor and like the work environment and how people respond to that work environment. So it's, it's an important part of the story. Um, but, um, but yeah, like how, how do you do it? and to keep be skeptical but also be respectful and i don't think there's an easy answer for it um i don't know how, what do you think about it in your podcast yeah thank you that was that was a, it's a tough question i appreciate it that, that <laughs> you're absolutely right and you, you remind me that like these these things happen in some sense to people you know and it's i don't know what that means except that i i think we can learn from them and i, I think that they will always probably be with us in some way whatever mm-hmm. whatever they are and whatever they mean to us um what I always say at the start of the show is I try to be critical but not cynical and that's that's I guess that's that's my motto I suppose you know I, I'm not looking to spread any bullshit but I'm not going to be you know I hope I, I want to believe as the X-Files said you know I just yeah the evidence has to be good that's <laughs> yeah and I think people are really interested in this subject so I think it's important to have a place where people can go and like feel safe about it but also get you know, a little bit more educated on how to be culturally sensitive 
on certain subjects and stuff. So and also how to relate it to like real social forces in people's lives. Um, and just because they clearly are, right? There's um, and and so yeah, so so I don't know. It's 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 a hard it's hard to it's hard to do. And I don't want to be like a debunker type. Like I want, I don't feel particularly good about telling somebody that their experience is wrong and that they're an idiot. You know, like um, yeah. or crazy. I, I tend not yeah. to use that language myself. I, yeah. Probably by most metrics, I'm some kind of skeptic, but I'm not. I just don't really like using that language. It doesn't resonate with me. I don't know why. Mm -hmm. Feels mean. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's all there is to it. Yeah. <laughs> I can, but also, I'm I like every time I take on a new case, I'm as open minded as I can be. And I'm like, maybe this will be the one. Maybe there'll be something to this. And to me, there's a difference between, you know, something happened to you, that means something to you. I can't step in and say that it did or it didn't. That's nothing to do with me. But when you come forward and say, right, we can show this thing scientifically, or we, you know, that's different. That's something yeah, that's that different. you can yeah. tell, you can test, and where like stuff that is nonsense or actually harmful needs to be sort of separated from the from everything else, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so I, th I think we're quite critical. I mean, of like right wing conspiracy theories um, and um, the sort of like reactionary politics that often accompany like narratives about like hauntings and demons. Um, but like, I think that's different from actually criticizing the experience itself. It's rather talking about like, what is the narrative like repeating within our culture that is harmful? Does it make sense? I think it does, yeah. Okay. <laughs> thank you. Uh, David and Mercedes, thank you very much for coming on. I really right. appreciate that. And I, 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 wonderful having your, your depth of reading and, and analysis on the show. I really appreciate it. All right, we appreciate you. Thank, thank you. you so much. And that is it for this episode, folks. Uh, once again, you can find us online over at Twitter. We are at Strange Ireland. And over on Instagram, we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. And don't forget, you can support us with a nice one-off donation over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash Wide Atlantic. And as always, stay safe and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.